When I was in seminary, in addition to Bible and theology, I also wanted to take classes about culture because I've always been fascinated by how different people put their lives together according to their belief systems, the way they were raised, uh, the food that's available, what the climate is like. And one of the best pieces of advice I was given by one of my professors who was a former missionary and a, a devout, godly Christian guy, but also an anthropologist with a Ph.D., he said, listen to, the, listen to the culture's sayings, listen to their phrases and their proverbs, because the things that people choose as their sayings, their quips, their jokes, those will tell you faster than they could, maybe better than they realize, what they really believe and how they really see the world. So this week, as we talk about King Saul, this tragic, confusing, hot and cold on-again, off-again leader that was anointed and chosen by God in spite of God knowing that it wasn't his best for his people and that Israel struggled for control, I got to thinking about the issue of control and this question, which is, who's in charge here? And I got to thinking about how temperaments fit together and how some people like to be in charge and they like to make the decisions. Sometimes they have a saying, we have a saying, to excuse, sometimes we behave like jerks in our decision-making, and we say something like this, you'll just have to forgive me, I'm a control freak. Anybody ever say that? Anybody ever notice sometimes that people who are really just kind of rude are saying that they're control freaks to excuse their rudeness? And I got to thinking, I wonder what the proportion is of people who like to call the shots, want to be in charge, want to make all the decisions, and compared to everybody else. So I'm interested to know, compared to the first service, how many of you would say, I'm not calling you jerks, I'm not calling you control freaks, I'm just saying, how many of you like to be in charge, you like to call the shots, you want to be making the decision? Could I see your hands? Yes, that's true, Rachel, we know that about you, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's dangerous to sit in the front row, I'm sorry. Okay, that was about 20-25%. So does that mean that the rest of you, the 75% who kept your hands down, does that mean that you don't want to be in control? Not really. Your decision to not be the one deciding is your decision. You don't want the headwind, you don't want the heat, you don't want the criticism of calling that shot, so you're content to leave it to somebody else and that's your decision. Truth is, everybody likes to be in control. Whether they frame it that way or see it that way. In our culture, we even have this crazy saying that explains our, I think, quietly, our love of control. We say this, and I've seen it in bumper stickers all across California and the United States. The bumper sticker says, God is my co-pilot. Now think about that for a second. If God is willing to be in the car... Why not let him drive? I knew we, we've been singing. One of the songs that we sang today explains that God is the creator of the universe. He spoke everything into being. Do we imagine that God saying, shotgun? <laughs> not happening. It's not true. He's a sovereign king. He's the creator. He's the ruler. Now, why am I telling you all this? And we come to this difficult portion of Israel's history. And we covered a lot of ground in our Bible reading this week. 
And it stretched me nearly to the breaking point to look at all of these amazing people that God dropped into the upper story that he was writing and he worked through their actions and their decisions, sometimes wise and godly, sometimes foolish and disastrous. To see all of that together, it really does boil down to this question. Who's in charge? For the last two weeks, we've been in the days of the judges. In the days of the judges, people decided that their answer to that question would be this. I believe in the king of me. Because the book of Judges ends with this statement about that time in Israel's history. Judges ends with this verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Would you read the days of the judges with me? It's in one sentence. Bible says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Any resemblance to modern day America is purely intentional. Okay. In the days of the judges, people believed in the king of me. But then the book of 1 Samuel opens and signals a huge hinge in Bible history. This is going to change the direction of God's people. In Samuel, you're going to meet one of the godliest men that ever walked the earth. In the days of Samuel, there was not much revelation from God. In other words, part of God's judgment, I believe, to his people was he wasn't speaking to them. They rarely heard from him. As God sometimes will, we see this again in Romans 1, God sometimes will turn people over to the desires of their own heart. When they rebel against him long enough, he turns them over to do exactly what they wanted to do. As C.S. Lewis said, every person on earth will either say to God, thy will be done, or will say on the day of judgment, God will say to them, thy will be done. That's what's happened in the book of Judges. And the word of God is seldom heard. There is no revelation. God is not speaking until Samuel shows up. And I say that Samuel is a hinge in Bible history because he's the last of the judges and he's also the first of the prophets. And a prophet is someone who is speaking authoritatively for God. And you can tell that a true prophet from God has arisen to tell people what God wants because everything he says happens. And it's a good thing that God put Samuel into this environment because the last days of the judges were wicked indeed. This is how the spiritual climate of the days of the judges is described in 1 Samuel. Samuel was miraculously born to a woman who could not have children until God intervened. And we're told about Samuel this. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That strike you as pretty strong? They were worthless men, and the next sentence tells you why they were worthless. They did not know the Lord. There is no intrinsic value in people. We don't achieve our true design created worth until we know the Lord. They were in a place of spiritual leadership, but they were worthless in that role. They were worthless men because they did not know the God that they presumed to serve. They were corrupt and self-serving. They were immoral, wicked men who were leading people straight into the abyss. And young Samuel was growing up in that environment. Here's how Samuel previews and summarizes what the ministry of the man Samuel was like. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Which is a Hebrew old way of saying everything that Samuel said was true. 
Everything he warned them, everything he blessed them with, every bit of counsel he gave them was true. None of his words fell to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that means from one end to the other of the country, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. But Samuel's a young man, and the priesthood of Israel is corrupt. And the early chapters of 1 Samuel tell us one of the most fascinating stories in our reading. It just summarized this. If you haven't read about the, cap, the use of the ark in war and how it was captured, go back and read that. It is one of the quietly funniest stories in all the Bible, how all of that unfolded. Here's what you need to know this morning. The priesthood of Israel was so corrupt that the people of Israel even used the ark of the covenant as an amulet for war. What do I mean by that? They were routed by the Philistines in battle, and they said, I know what we'll do. We'll go get the ark. And the ark will fight for us. The ark will save us from our enemies. They had reduced the symbol of God's presence among them to a good luck charm. They thought if we can have this sacred object with us, it will fight our wars for us. There is a ritualizing religious element in people's hearts that wants to reduce their relationship with God to a ritual or a series of steps or a certain number of things that they do to mechanically get God's favor as if God were some sort of cosmic vending machine that if you manipulate him in the right way, he'll give you the life you want. That's how far away they are from their understanding of God. And the story becomes hilarious because, first, tragically, the ark of God is captured because God is so committed to not, people not re- being reducing him to idolatry and reducing him to a box. He allowed his ark to be captured. When word came to the old man, Eli, that his sons had been killed and the ark of God was captured, Eli himself fell over and died. And then God vindicated himself. You'll have to read the story for yourself. God destroyed an idol of the Philistines so that they would know that the ark actually was a symbol of his presence. And in the middle of all this, Samuel led Israel back to God. And they had peace. And they had someone telling him something. You and I can't even conceive what a blessing it was to have a man like Samuel in their lifetime telling them, this is what God is telling us. All of Israel could know what God wanted at any given point. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of guidance? Kind of a trick question. You have that guidance. You don't need a prophet. God gave you his word. He settled it and wrote it down. And if you're following Jesus, the Holy Spirit has given you new life and lives within you and opens this book up to you. And God, not through ritual, but through relationship, guides you and shows you his word for you. And what you see in the early days of Israel is they have no reverence for God, no reverence for his word. They're not even paying attention to Samuel. And in all of this, Samuel was leading Israel back to God and they had peace, but God was not enough. That's really the struggle in discipleship. The question for me, every day that I've followed Jesus... In all the seasons of life that God has faithfully led me through, the question really at the heart of my following Jesus and yours is this. Is God enough for you? Do you need God and something? Or will God be enough? For the people of Israel, God was not enough. And they chose after the days of the king of me, they made 
perhaps an even worse decision. They said, we want a king we can see. We're tired of doing our own thing. But instead of turning back to God and letting him be our king and our leader, we're tired of the invisibility of God. We're tired of having a God that we cannot see. We want to be like the other nations. They have visible objects of worship. They have things that they do that make sure that God can speak to them. We want a king we can see. Here's how it happened. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. That's a quiet hint of how bad things had gotten. In the days of the judges, God raised up the judges. In Samuel's old age, did you see what it said? He made his son's judges, and they weren't good men. The name of his first name, son was, of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. I've struggled with that verse ever since I became a dad. Now, let me just make an aside. Parents, you need to understand this. Faith is not hereditary. It's one of the great puzzles to me of what God tells us actually happened in human history that apparently the sons of Samuel were no better than the sons of Eli. They were the same kind of men. They took their closeness to God, the revelation of God that they had through their own father and every opportunity to walk with God. They did not make it their own. They walked away from God and they took bribes and perverted justice. Mom and dad, if you have been blessed with influence over children, whether you're a single parent, perhaps especially if you're a single parent, please understand your faith will not be hereditary. It won't be caught. It must be taught. You must live it out so that they will know that God is your priority, that he is your sufficiency, he is enough for you, and you need to pray and struggle and teach. And when you sin against your kids, confess it openly and don't hide it. Show them the scars of your own disobedience to God and do everything you can to do what Israel was told to do, to teach your kids to love the Lord, your God, and their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not hereditary. And that led to a painful confrontation between Samuel and the elders of Israel. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, I love the bluntness of the Old Testament. Check this out. Behold, you are what? It's a tough conversation starter, don't you think? Look, Samuel, you're old. You've led us well. You've spoken God, God's word to us. There's no doubt about it. Everything you said has been true. But you're old and your sons are not like you. Your sons do not walk in your ways. The next thing they should have said was, make sure that we keep walking with God. God made a covenant with us. He made us a promise that we would be his nation that we would be a kingdom of priests, that we would represent him to the world. Help us, Samuel, avoid the influence of your kids and help us walk with God. That's not what they said. What they said was, we want a king we can see. They said, now appoint for us a king. Here's the spiritual heart of this passage. This is written down as a warning to all believers of all time. This is the battle. This is the temptation. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. Then what's it say? like all the nations. Samuel, we want to be like everybody else. 
We're tired of this invisible God. We see corrupt leadership around us. We're tired of dealing with priests. They don't serve us well. Give us Samuel. Give us a king. Let us help us be like everybody else. Now, if you'll think back on your childhood, has everybody's doing it? Was that ever a good argument in your house? Oh, man, I tried that with my mother a few times. You'd think I'd learn. I said a few times because I'm not that sharp. And she had a long list of replies, including the old, if all your friends were jumping off cliffs, would you? And honestly, at a certain point in my life, yeah, probably I would have jumped off the cliff. My mom insisted that she had better things for me. And Samuel knew this was a disastrous decision. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Here's a sad judgment. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected who? They've rejected me. That's the heart of this passage. That's the tragedy of this story. In the question, who's going to be in charge? They move from one bad decision to another. The days of the judges, it's the king of me. Now they say, we want a king we can see. We want someone to take us out into battle. We want somebody to represent us. God says, they've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And Samuel did. The broken-hearted old man gathered Israel and he said, you don't want to do this. He's going to make your boys his farmers and his soldiers. He's going to make his, your, da your daughters cooks and perfumers. He's going to tax you very heavily to take care of his servants. Your land is going to become his land. You're going to end up in slavery to this man. And the heart of their temptation and the heart of my temptation in my decision of whether to follow Jesus, we face the constant temptation to be like everyone else. Everything in this culture, for a culture that is so self-styled and so supposedly individualistic, what the culture really wants because it is a prison from diso of disobedience that separates people from God in the United States in very specific ways. It wants to press you into a mold that does not take into account the revelation of God. God has spoken truth to you in his written word and in his living word, Jesus, and you can trust it. You can trust it every day of your life. You can trust it especially, and you'll need to on the day of your death. You can trust him, but the culture insistently begs you, cajoles you, embarrasses you, intimidates you into being like everybody else. And Samuel warned them. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, folks, it is foolishness to keep insisting before God that you know what you want when he has already told you what he wants and he knows what is best for you. And I'm telling you that both as a biblical observation and a confession. 
I love control as much as the next person. When things don't go my way, I immediately want to swing into action. My heart, divided and apart from Jesus, does not trust him in moments of crisis except by his grace. And when things aren't going my way, or I need something else, or I'm afraid for my kids, or I want something to happen in my life, in the ministry of the church, and the work God has given me, I want to step in, get onto it, make sure I can see it, make sure it makes sense, make sure we have a plan, make sure we're following through. And in all of that, what God is inviting me to do is to get back to him, to listen to him, to listen to his written and his living word truth, which is Jesus, and do what he says. He really does know what is best. Do you believe that? I see the easiest confession, the easiest profession of faith on Sunday morning is that we believe that, we, that God knows what is best for us. Discipleship is living that out. And at this moment in Israel's history, they're making a crazy decision to have a king instead. So God gave them what they wanted. And in Saul, the king, the people had a king like themselves. He was physically impressive. He was the tallest man in the nation. In our day, we would say that Saul looked presidential. Have you heard that phrase? It seems that the election cycle never stops, right? They've inaugurated the new president, and already there's talk about the rest of the, rest of the guys and gals jockeying for position for four years later. Well, Saul looked a certain way. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. But he's a man made out of different stuff. He's a fearful man. He's a hot and cold man. On the day of his coronation, sadly, he is found hiding among the equipment. He is a hot and cold leader who by turns has God moving upon him and leading people to great success. And in other places, and this is why his history is written as a warning to believers of all time, he is a man who out of practicality does what he thinks is best or what he must do. He is a man, in other words, of occasional obedience. And he leads Israel on a path from bad to worse. Let me take, take you to two for instances that spelled the doom of Saul. Initially, he gave them great success. The Philistines were threatening a part of his country. He went and rescued them, and he had the people on his side. But now it's time to, dread, to fight the dreaded Philistines. And Samuel told him, as a prophet of God who is still leading and still telling people what God wants, Saul, you go to the battle line and wait for me. Wait seven days. I will come and offer sacrifices and lead you in worship, and I'm going to tell you what you should do next. Simple, right? Go where you can see the enemy. Wait for God's man to come deliver God's word. He will lead the people in worship. He will tell you what God wants next. Here's what happened instead. Saul took the place of Samuel. It says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Try to imagine this in your mind's eye. It should be easy. We grew up on TV and movies. Try to see this. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Can you see it? The Philistines filled the whole horizon. These soldiers came to a place where they could see the Philistine army. And they filled everything they could see. 
If there was a place where they could begin to see where the horizon curved, there were soldiers even there. There were chariots. They had iron. They had everything stacked up against Israel, and the people knew the trouble they were in. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the, Beth, to the east of beth And When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan River to the land of Gad and Gilead. In other words, some people got on the other side of the river. This is nonsense. It's like a swarm of locusts out there. If they make the first move, they're going to kill us where we stand. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him. Love this. What's it say? Trembling. Here's your big, tall king. Here's the man you wanted. He's leading you to face tens of thousands of soldiers who are better and better equipped than you are. And they're shaking. You know, that's exactly what happens Police and military psychologists tell us when a man is going into what he knows will be mortal combat, they're trembling. And Saul's out in front. And the man who didn't want to be king, who is king because the people wanted him and for reasons that Saul cannot understand, God actually appointed him. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. This is tragic. What Saul is doing is consolidating control. And listen, he waited seven days in the sight of this army. Do you understand the trouble that Saul was facing? He's got people who would literally hide in a grave rather than stand beside him. And they're saying, hey, king, what's the plan? Well, we got to wait for Samuel. When's he coming? Seven days from now. Seven days? What if they attack us at dawn? They could come over here and kill us anytime. He said to wait seven days. And then seven days pass. Do you think Saul feels entitled now to get on with it? The king moves in to the place of spiritual leadership. The man who had civic and military control consolidates all power. And he says to himself, fine, I'll do it. And the reason this is in scripture and the reason I'm taking the time to explain it to you is this. Disobedience always has its reasons. If God has told you clearly in his word how you are to live and you have a culture screaming to you, no, no, don't listen to God. That's an old, outdated book. Those are 2,000-year-old letters. Those are ancient stories. They have no relevance to us today. This is the way to thrive. This is the way to live. It takes a great deal of trust in an invisible God to do what God said instead. Because disobedience always has its reasons. It's always practical. It's always expedient. It's always helpful. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Isn't that the way? You held on for seven days. You finally caved, and now here he is. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, watch for the blame shifting. Ready? We've got experience with this now, right? We've, we've watched people's lives unfold. Watch the blame shifting. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, 
and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Do you understand what he's saying? What was I supposed to do, Samuel? The people were scattering. You didn't do what you said. They're garrisoned here waiting to attack me, and I haven't worshipped. So I chose to worship in my own way. I stepped into your role. I took your authority. So I love this. So I what? I forced myself. I didn't have any choice. Samuel, what was I supposed to do? Now, why are these stories here in this detail? So that you'll read history. You'll read the lower story and find yourself in it and understand that when you and I disobey God, this is how absurd it looks. From the upper story perspective, from a sovereign God who has written down his will, given you his Holy Spirit to explain it to you, given his son to save you from sin, to make you part of God's family who controls every circumstance, who can do anything he pleases at any time, regardless of how difficult and threatening my earthly circumstances are, when I choose for whatever perfectly understandable reason to disobey God, because disobedience always has its reasons, this is how it looks to God. I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Here's God's judgment. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Why? You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. It really boils down to the reverence for God and the steadfast decision to keep doing what he said. That was Saul's first mistake. The second led to his decisive rejection and leads us to one of the big truths of the Old Testament. God told Saul later, go against the Amalekites who attacked the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. It's time for justice. And just as they had done for Jericho, Saul and his army set out to destroy the Amalekites. And the command was simple. Destroy everything. Saul and the people made another decision. They said, we'll sacrifice the worthless things. We'll set some of the good stuff aside. Samuel showed up to that sad scene and said this, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, there it is again, the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Here's the, one of the central truths in the Bible. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Would you read that next phrase with me? Behold, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Get it? Saul is saying, listen, we're worshiping. Samuel said, you didn't do what God told you to do. 
Well, it's the people, see? And you can understand Saul's situation. These men have just come through the trauma of mortal combat again. They are energized and trembling. They see wealth before them. And the rationalization is something like this. Hey, Saul, listen, we won. To the victor go the spoils, right? Saul, if I could just have that little bit of money right there, I'd change my family, man. That'd be a game changer for my kids. I could buy a little land. I could farm the land. You could tax the land. It's going to be good for us. Saul, could I just have this? And kingly decisions are made not to obey God, to listen to the people instead. Samuel comes into this scene and says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, the animals you would offer to God, he doesn't care about that. What he wants you to do is listen. Let's keep reading. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. And presumption, in other words, the decision to do your own thing, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, why are these scathing words written down from something that happened some 3,000 years ago so that you will hear God's heart and you and I will know how much obedience still matters to him? The king of the universe is not someone to be set lightly aside. He is to be loved and served and obeyed. So after all the reading you did this week and after this long story, it was a, it was a challenging week for me to think about what lessons we should take from this. Here's what I think I've found in God's word this week. Here's some warning signs that you're fighting God to be in charge. Because the question always is going to be who's in charge here. Here's some warning signs, some symptoms that you're fighting to control yourself. First of all, God is becoming a power to manipulate rather than a father to love and a king to serve. That's why they brought the ark onto the battlefield. Now, we don't have the ark of the covenant, and we're hopefully not that ritualistic. Here's what that looks like in people's lives, certainly has in mind. When I say that God can become a power to manipulate, that looks like this. I need his help, so I better be good. If I do these things, if I pick up these habits, if I refrain from this, if I do this for a while, then God's favor will come again. And what I'm choosing there is God's blessing rather than God himself. And he can see right through that. We need to watch for this because there's a strain of Bible teaching running around the whole world that invites you to see God as someone that you can control by doing certain kinds of religious things. And then he will open up the doors of blessing and prosperity to you. It's simply not in Scripture. What God wants is a covenant family relationship where He is your Father and He loves you and He knows what is best for you and He guides you sometimes through very difficult things for your good and His glory and at the end of the day you die and go to heaven knowing that you can trust Him. He's a Father to love and a King to serve. Secondly, a second sign that you're fighting God for control, you only live by what you can see. In other words, your life, your decisions... That the way you spend your time, the way you spend and give your money, it all makes sense. It's not a discipleship way to live. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. 
And this is a hard thing, and it's going to get harder as our culture more rapidly accelerates away from God. It's going to be harder and harder for you to maintain biblical truth and keep loving and serving and giving and forgiving and teaching and doing everything that God has called you to do when the culture is continually screaming to be like the culture instead. Think about what we've done here this morning. We've gathered three or four generations from every walk of life and several different nations, several different languages spoken in this room alone without including the people in the first service, and we have sung songs to a person we cannot see. I have opened up an ancient book and told you the lives of men who lived 3,000 years ago. And I'm inviting you personally along my own struggle, confessing how I've failed to live up to you. I'm inviting you and challenging you in the name of Jesus to live your life accordingly, telling you that Jesus died for your sins. And he wasn't a Jewish peasant who got in trouble for saying some sharp political things. He was actually the son of God who came in the flesh to live your life in your place, who died purposely on the cross to bear God's judgment for you. And then most amazingly, on April 5th, we'll gather again in several services to celebrate the historical fact that he rose from the dead to give eternal life to everyone who trusted him. Does that make any sense to people that don't have faith? No. We look like people out of our minds. That's why the Bible says we walk by faith. Not by hope, not by conjecture. We walk by trusting God who told us that these things happened and gave proof of them and we don't walk by sight. And the most bizarre thing in the world is that people will have all of that trust and then live their ordinary lives Monday to Saturday as if God could not be trusted. And you had to figure it out, and you had to stay in control. You don't. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be king. He wants to be Lord. He wants to be your father. Finally, this is the summary of the life of Saul. A final sign that you're fighting God for control is you have a self-styled and selective obedience. See, the puzzling thing about Saul is that he could be very, very good. He could give peace to God's people. He could do exactly what God said. And then a different spirit would take hold of him and he would do his own thing and lead people straight into disaster. At the end of his life, you'll keep reading, Saul dies by his own hand and his son dies next to him. One half-hearted man and one godly man dead on the battlefield because the king would not do as God said. The king chose his spots. The king said, I'll obey God here and here and here. But in these other areas, have you heard the people? Did you know that the prophet is late? Have you seen the size of the enemy? Listen, disobedience will always have its reasons, but you keep trusting God and you keep doing what he said. Because the truth of the matter is this, folks. This story was written, I believe, to give us this simple warning. If you want to live like everybody else, you'll end up no better than they do. And God has better things for you. Let's pray. Can I talk to you just a moment, disciple to disciple, before you pray? Where is it that you're choosing your spots of obedience? What parts are you just, have you been unwilling to trust God in? Are you chronically angry? Are you always afraid? 
Is it a money thing with you? God blesses, provides, but you always need a little bit more. You can't afford to be generous, be a giver, because you're afraid that you won't have enough later. Is it your kids? Like Eli, are you afraid of your kids? Afraid if, man, if I tell them the truth, if I confront them in love, even if I do it in love, they'll hate me for it. I better keep quiet. It could be a thousand different things. Whatever it is, God wants to be king of all of it. He wants to be your loving father that, and have you trust him in every area. Talk to him about it right now and listen. If you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, this could be your day. He really did die for your sins. He really did come back from the grave so that you will say to him, Jesus, I'm sorry, save me. I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to run my own life. You be the Lord. You rescue me. And he will. That's what he does. That's why we call him Savior. Trust him. And my last thing, I ask this as a, give us the opportunity to celebrate with you whatever decision you make today. If God is leading you, write it down on a card and turn it in. As the basket goes by, let us know that you've decided to follow Jesus. If you need prayer, if you're tired of chronic disobedience in a certain area of your life, and even if it's anonymous, if you want to prayer this week saying, I'm tired of being selective with where I obey God, help me pray about this one thing that's so hard for me. We will. And your discipleship to Jesus will grow. Lord, man, we're, Lord, we're, all half-hearted we're all on the way none of us are complete none of us are perfectly mature we all have areas of selective obedience help us not to yield to the pressure to be like everybody else help us Lord to be like David not Saul not to pick our spots of obedience not to choose the model the world offers us but to boldly follow after you and see that you make a difference you provide you fight our battles you take care of us and you turn us into the people into the children you want us to be help my brothers and sisters as they open up their hearts to you to trust you fully so that we would not end up like everybody else who refuses to trust you i pray this in jesus name amen so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.